You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Kane. Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hefe, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And a special shout out this week to Pirate Moonson, who came up with an amazing rendition of Rosie the Privateer. I definitely suggest you check it out. You can do so over at our website or on Twitter at Moonsun Comics, and you can check out their webcomic, Whispers in the Wind, a pirate-themed webcomic, over at thecomicseries.com. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Let us travel back to Tortuga in the 1640s. It was a very rough place. It wasn't even an official colony yet. France wouldn't recognize the French settlers there until 1659. Those that were there were essentially squatters. They were religious exiles on Spanish land. That was the beginning, though, of the era of the Brethren of the Coast. Those French squatters began to cause real problems, and Spain tried again and again to oust them from their land. And it was into that world, that world of early French habitation on Haiti, that we introduce a girl named Jacquette de Leahy. She was born there on Tortuga, though the circumstances are unclear. Exactly who her parents were is up for debate. Her mother has been called a Haitian, and some have taken that to mean that she was black, but I don't think that's the case. The French called their colony there Haiti, after the name that their Indian neighbors gave to the island, and I believe that Jacquette's mother was probably French. Her father is equally mysterious, though. He has been described as French, as Spanish, and as Taino. It's possible that he was, if not Taino, at least an Arawak-speaking Amerindian. Now, there weren't many of them left on the island at the time, but those that were left were living on the coast where the French settled. He may have been Spanish as well, but I think that's unlikely too. If that were the case, it's unlikely that her Spanish father was married to her French Protestant mother. I think it's most likely that her father was French as well. Now, it may be less of a romantic tale than star-crossed lovers, but it's more realistic. The main reason I think that that's the case is because Jacquette has always been described as having fiery red hair. That's not a common trait in those of African or Spanish or Amerindian descent. However, it's not unheard of. In truth, we don't really know much about Jacquette's parentage. 
We do know she had a younger brother. We don't know his name, but we do know he was born with a mental disability. It may have been autism, but medical science at the time was not nearly advanced enough to tell us. Sadly, her mother died giving birth to her brother. And when she was still young, perhaps about 12 years old, Jacquette suffered a tragedy. Her father was murdered in a raid by the Spanish. She was left without any real prospects. She was alone and had to take care of her brother to fend for both of them. It was a hard life, almost certainly, just trying to earn enough to eat. What she did over the next few years, we aren't exactly sure. Some have said she served as a lady's maid, but I'm curious exactly what ladies she was serving on Tortuga in the 1640s. She may have been a servant, though, cooking and cleaning for some establishment or family in town, and she may have served food or drinks at one of the local Kill Devil shops. As the years drew on, there's a chance she turned to prostitution from time to time, though it's not recorded as such. Tortuga didn't have a lot of opportunities, and that might mean the difference between eating and starving, alongside her brother, who she was caring for. Which leads us to the question of the other challenges she faced. She was, as the years went on, a pretty teenage girl with bright red hair, and she was all alone in one of the toughest ports in the world, filled with brutal, lawless men. That she survived at all is evidence enough that she learned the skills necessary to defend herself, even if those lessons were hard come by. She struggled by for several years, trying every day to ensure that she and her brother had a roof under which they could sleep and something to eat, and they didn't always have either. Finally, Jacquette became fed up with that life of scrounging and scraping and chose to do something about it. Young men, men her own age, well, they were all going to sea on buccaneer ships as brethren of the coast, and they were coming back with sacks full of gold and silver. Now, Jacquette wasn't allowed to join with one of those crews because she was a woman, but she had a way around that. In the right clothes, with the right hair and enough dirt on her face, she could pass herself off as a teenage boy who was looking to enlist. But beyond all that, beyond the promise of bags of coin and enough to eat, the life of a buccaneer afforded her the possibility of revenge. This life of hardship and toil was forced upon her by a Spanish soldier. Her father had been killed by a Spanish soldier, and every bit of suffering that she'd endured was his fault, and the fault of his masters. So if she joined a brethren craft, she would be given the opportunity to meet with some of those Spaniards and to kill them. So she donned boys' clothing and found a crew and successfully joined up. She went to sea. Now she may have actually served alongside some of the famous French and Dutch buccaneers that we've talked about on this show, although that would have been before any of them rose to prominence. Buccaneers like Roque Brasiliano and Francois Lolonnais and Philippe Bekel, any of them might have been her crewmates while they all learned their way around a brethren craft. Eventually, though, her true identity did come out. Everyone learned she was a woman. However, by then she'd been sailing for some time, raiding and pillaging successfully alongside the men, and they all knew that she was just as capable as any of them, perhaps even more so. 
and given her personal hatred of all things Spanish, she may have had a particular fervor when it came to finding and robbing and killing the Spanish that really eclipsed any of the other buccaneers. So her secret was out, but she continued to serve, even as a woman, now openly as a woman, and she rose through the ranks. Perhaps her being a woman served to grow that notoriety, but it was her brutality and her thirst for Spanish blood that led the men to follow her. Eventually, they followed her as captain. Her rise to captain probably followed a typical pattern. She may have been voted up to be a quartermaster on board her vessel to represent the crew and to stand as an equal to the captain. But then, when their crew took a larger and better craft, the captain would have taken over that craft and she would have been voted in as captain of the old ship. Now, several of the men, especially those that valued her abilities above their age-old prejudices would have volunteered to join her crew. However, it was, more than anything else, Jacquette's ability to earn them a decent share by finding and taking prizes that would have convinced any of the men to stay, and then would have convinced more to join up. That was the bottom line, and that's why buccaneers buccaneered. Her ship probably wound up joining fleets under Francois Lolonet or even Diego Lucifer to raid the main. She would have captured and outfitted bigger and better ships for her to command and wound up recruiting even more men. The problem, though, with being a successful pirate is that with each of your successes, that raises your visibility in the eyes of the law. In this case, the law was Spain. They began hunting specifically for Jacquette, and word reached her in port right before the Spanish closed in. Perhaps it was all of the cargo she'd stolen or all of the lives that she had taken that caused the Spanish to chase after her personally, or perhaps it was the fact that it was a woman that was doing all of that that caused them to focus on her. It was a particular affront that a woman had so offended them. So they commandeered her ship while it was in port, and they captured any among her crew that they could find. However, Jacquette wasn't to be so easily taken. Once again, she donned men's clothes, a bit too big and a bit dirty, and she cut her hair. Then she rubbed soot on her face and in her hair to dull the bright red of it. Once again, she disguised herself as a man and disappeared. Then she started spreading the rumor of her own death. Many in her position would have taken that escape as a win and retired far from prying Spanish eyes, but that wasn't how Jacquette intended to play it. In 1654, the Spanish once again came to her home. They came in force to Tortuga, and they captured the island and its fortress. Jacquette, along with many others, fled the island. She took a ship and a small crew, and once again she turned to the sea. She visited all those old haunts that the Brethren of the Coast used to hide out, where she recruited. She got more crews to join her cause. Then she sailed on for Port Royal and enlisted some of the help of the Englishmen that had just taken the island from Spain. Some of them were eager to go and capture Tortuga, so they joined up as well. It was apparently those Englishmen that gave Jacquette de la Haye her nickname, the name that she is best known by today. 
Now, they'd all heard of her. She was a famous name, and they'd heard of her death. And yet here she was. She'd let her hair grow out, and she'd let it regain its natural luster. And now she was in command of a fleet of ships sailing to retake Tortuga. Those Englishmen called her Back from the Dead Red. She was successful in taking the island back from Spain. Back from the Dead Red once again made Tortuga her home, and she had a small armada to aid in the defense of it and to send out to earn a living. She would eventually be killed two years later, defending the island from Spain. This is Episode 60 by the will of God. You might be wondering why, with such a thrilling, romantic, and cinematic tale taking place back before Henry Morgan sailed, I haven't yet mentioned Jacquette de la Haye. It's a great story, but that's all it is. Everything I just told you about Back from the Dead Red is fiction. It's not real. That was a lie so sorry about that. However, it was a popular fiction, and remains so today. But the very earliest record we have of her exploits came from the 1940s. It was written by a man named Leon Schreich. He may have passed off his tale of Back from the Dead Red as absolute fact, but he was a fiction writer. His saying that the tale of Jacquette de la Haye was absolute truth is like the new 15th Amityville horror sequel claiming that their movie is based on actual events. It was a tale told to sell books, and it worked. Back from the Dead Red became famous, but in the 20th century. Just Google Back from the Dead Red and you'll see how popular she still is. There are articles and blogs and... Twitter handles discussing her. And there's even a red wine named after her. I'd like to read from their website. It reads, quote, Out of the deadly Caribbean waters of the 17th century comes the true story of Jacquette de la Haye, an orphan driven to piracy as a tender young girl. In an attempt to evade the law, Jacquette faked her own death. Upon being recognized by her signature flowing red hair, she earned her treacherous moniker back from the dead red, stirring fear into the hearts of any who saw her fiery red locks at the helm. As deadly as she was beautiful, her legend continues to inspire many a buccaneer. End quote. Now I like that passage. I bet their wine is delicious and I intend to try some, and I don't take any issue with their using that story. It's a good story. I could take issue with their calling it a true story, but it's just a wine company. It's not an academic article. And they're hardly alone, either. Those blogs and those articles and all those Twitter users, well, they all claim that Jacquette's story was reality. And really, I don't take issue with that either. That's all part of the myth of piracy, and the legend of pirates is half the fun. I mean, a decent amount of Blackbeard's fame is due to the myth of his death. That myth where his decapitated body swam around the Queen Anne's Revenge three times. That certainly didn't happen. Now, I'll stand here and be a buzzkill all day, but that shouldn't affect anyone else from enjoying a good story. Stay.
step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Who I do take issue with, though, is the author that penned. Jacquette de la Haye's story, Leon Trike. Not for writing a story, and not even for passing it off as reality. That was a common fiction convention at the time, but for two other reasons. First, when he gives Jacquette a handicapped brother who was unable to fend for himself, and then he follows that up by killing her father by an evil Spaniard, then he he has the ability to paint Jacquette as a struggling girl trying to make it in the world against all odds. And this dehumanizes her, to me at least. It removes her agency. It's like the author is saying, see, Jacquette isn't really a bad person, she's just trying to care for her brother and seeking justice for her father. I mean, even the best of the buccaneers weren't exactly Robin Hood. They killed, and they robbed, and they didn't give back to the poor. I think this might come from the 1940s mindset. It was a world where women had the vote, and they were working in factories and leading resistance factions in Europe, and they were beginning to show just how capable they actually were in the male world. But obviously, to the 1940s mind, women were just a more delicate sex, and possessed of a maternal instinct. If they were to go to sea to hunt the Spanish ships, it had to be for the greater good. To care for someone weak and to seek justice, it couldn't be that they were just the sort of person willing to take advantage of government commissions and kill and rob any Spaniards they came across. I mean, we're all complex individuals, and we all have our own reasons for doing things, but to me, Trike's assessment of women at sea rings false. And the second issue I have with his tale of Back from the Dead Red is that so much of it is lifted whole cloth from a real-world story, from someone else's real-world story. If you think back to when Anne first arrived in the West Indies, you may have noticed some 
similarities between her story and that of Jacquette de la Haye. That's not a mistake. It's almost as if the author took Anne's story and ran with it, adding in all sorts of fictitious elements to suit his narrative needs. He even hints, and many others have come right out and said, that Anne and Back from the Dead Red actually sailed together. Never mind the fact that Anne was a toddler when Jacquette was killed, according to his narrative, or that she wouldn't have arrived on Tortuga until over a decade later. However, just because it's not true, that doesn't mean that the story of Jacquette de la Haye doesn't matter. There is, in terms of actual historical fact, so little on women in piracy, especially during the Golden Age, that to tell a complete and compelling story about them, you almost always have to fill in the gaps or else use an entirely new story. I just wish that in this case the author had been a bit more original. The story of Back from the Dead Red is basically a stew made up of stories of several women across different ages of piracy. And actually in that, I think that gives the story some value. We know so much more about Blackbeard or Henry Morgan or Black Bart Roberts or any of a dozen other men in piracy, but we have so little in the way of hard facts on women. So it makes sense to invent a woman that incorporates elements of all of their stories. It's not history, but it creates a sort of parable of a figure that represents many other lesser-known real-world pirates. And... Jacquette de la Haye's story is far from the only fictional account of a pirate woman that's been taken as reality, but it's, in my opinion, the best. For example, there's the story of Charlotte de Berry. She was a woman who married a sailor and disguised herself as a man so she could sail alongside him. The captain found out, though. He didn't report her, however, because he wanted to take her for himself. The captain then started assigning her husband the most dangerous jobs on the ship. He wanted to see him dead. And when that didn't work out, he finally just accused her husband of plotting a mutiny and executed him. So the captain was free to force his advances on Charlotte. But she ran away. Then she was kidnapped by another brutal ship's captain who forced her into marriage that essentially kept her as a slave to his many unspeakable whims on his African farm. Finally, she incited his crew to mutiny and cut her own husband's head off, and her tale just goes on like that. It's a salacious, bloody, violent bodice-ripper. And it was meant to be. It's out of a penny dreadful. It's not high literature. It's not history. But once again, her story has been mistaken for real life all too often. Now, the goal here today is to talk about real history. But even the history we're going to talk about has been infected with those same elements found in that penny dreadful tale. It's difficult to discern the truth in the story we're telling today. So much of it is, at best, poorly sourced, but we're going to try. When we left off last time, the Spanish had just won a great victory at Sabana Real, or at La Limonade. They'd defeated the militia led by Governor de Cusay and Lorjo de Graff. De Cusay and most of his officers had been captured and executed. De Graff, however, had escaped. As had Anne. She'd made her way to Tortuga, and 
given birth to her child, while the Spanish were busy ransacking and burning Cap Francais and Port de Pas and Petit Guave. In the aftermath, the French in Saint-Dominique picked up the pieces and started to rebuild. The war had left them incapable of really doing much fighting, but the war was picking up steam all around them. Around that time, an English armada of about 3,000 men sailed against Guadeloupe, a French territory. Combined fleets of naval units and privateers, both English and Spanish, raided French cities all across the region. However, France did have an answer to this. They sent out the Marquis de Reny to serve as governor-general at Martinique, and they gave him a fleet with 14 men of war and a host of smaller vessels to defend French interests. And then, to Saint-Dominique, they sent one Jean-Baptiste Ducasse. Ducasse is a really interesting character in the story of West Indian piracy, and he's one that we'll see many more times in the future. He started his career initially as a buccaneer and a slave trader on the coast of Africa, and then he moved on to Petit Guave in the 1680s, where he operated for several years as a buccaneer. While he was there, he would have met many of the famous pirates we've talked about. Lorho de Groff, Michel de Grammont, Michael Andrezun, Nicholas von Horn, Jean Hamlin, all of them. He even very likely sailed alongside them at times. But then he made a smart move. He sailed back to France, and then gave half of all his winnings to the French crown. In return, he was given the rank of lieutenant in the French Navy. This was back in 1687. He sailed in the Mediterranean for a couple of years, but then when the war broke out, he sailed for Martinique in the Windward Islands. He used it as a base of operations. One time, he was attacking St. Kitts alongside a French buccaneer named Jean Fantine, and the most famous pirate to grace the next age of piracy we're going to talk about broke onto the scene. He was there when Captain William Kidd mutinied and took command of his first vessel, but we'll talk a lot more about both of them later. After Governor de Cusset was killed, Ducasse sailed for Saint-Dominique. Now, he wasn't governor yet, he just went to survey the damage, but he found the island in ruins. The dead were unburied, heaped up in piles. Yellow fever was running rampant through the populace, so Ducasse returned to Martinique and reported on his findings. And then he was immediately embroiled in one of the more significant sea battles of the Nine Years' War, at least in the West Indies. When all that was over and done with, though, he received word from Louis XIV's ministers informing him that he would be taking over the governorship of Saint-Dominique. Now, he was central to all of the colony's doings during the war. There are many exciting tales of his exploits, of battles that were won or lost, and pretty soon we'll tell those tales, but today he's not our focus. He did, however, as one of his first official actions, name Lorho Cornelis Boudouin de Graaf, quote, Sieur de Graaf, Lieutenant du Roy for the government of Ile-la-Tortue and coast of Saint-Dominique, end quote. The new governor had a high opinion of Lorho de Graaf. He actually knew him from way back when, and they were friends. But he had less love for the rest of the inhabitants of the islands. He would write of them, quote, They are very bad subjects who believe that they have not been put on the world except to practice brigandage and piracy. 
Enemies of subordination and authority, their example ruins the colonies, all the young people having no other wish than to embrace this profession for its libertinage and ability to gain booty. End quote. That was what he had to work with. That was who lived on Saint-Dominique. De Groff was charged with the defense of the coast of the island, most notably of Cap Francais. It was still some of the best land on the island for growing sugar cane, and the French were not about to give it up. De Groff oversaw the rebuilding and then saw new defenses put in place. Now, during this time, Anne would have returned as well. She was, once again, a widow with a newborn child. But she still had her plantation to oversee and her interests to protect. And she would need to protect them. The Spanish from Santo Domingo were rattling their sabers. All the evidence pointed to another attack on Cap Francais. But Governor Ducasse sailed a flotilla from Petit Guave to Port de Paix and then sent 120 militiamen on to Cap Francais. This convinced the Spanish not to attack. Cap Francais had at least a little respite from the war. And then here, sometime during the rebuilding process, in late 1692 or maybe early 1693, we get to see one of those moments in history. One of the great moments in the legend of piracy. The tale is usually told something like this. The great pirate Lorho de Graff was out drinking when a local man crossed him. The two shared hard words, and the local man challenged de Graff to a duel. The notorious pirate agreed, but he drew his pistol and shot the man while his back was turned. A few days later, his widow, Anne, came to that same bar seeking justice for her husband. She found de Graff sitting there, surrounded by his men, and she picked up a glass of rum and threw it in the pirate's face. De Graff stood calmly and asked the young woman if he had somehow offended her. She replied that yes, that scurvy-ridden pirate had killed her husband not two days gone, and she meant to have her revenge. She was carrying a pistol and a saber. De Graff agreed to face her in a duel. He laid out his terms for a fair fight with the saber. And, though, to his shock, accepted the duel. De Graff hadn't expected that. He expected her to back down, or to try and kill him right out. But she agreed to cross swords with him. With him, the most feared man on the seven seas. That so impressed De Graff that he immediately fell to his knees and professed his admiration for her and her courage. Not only that, but her beauty. He asked this fiery young woman to be his wife, and Anne accepted this offer as well. The two were married that very day. It's a thrilling tale. But if someone killed your spouse and you went to find vengeance, what are the chances that you'd wind up marrying them? I'm thinking the chances are slim. I've seen this story shared as if it's truth by many. It's often treated kind of like a cheap romance novel. De Graff is the swarthy, sexy rogue that just gets Anne's heart all aflutter with his dashing good looks and the air of danger that surrounds him. I mean, yeah, he's dangerous. He just killed the father of her child. That story is, of course, total nonsense. It was written by men in the 19th century. Other, more recent versions have de Graff merely insulting Anne rather than murdering her husband, but then the rest of the tale plays out as before. I think that that, too, is malarkey. It assumes de Graff is just a pirate, 
a pirate out of myth that goes about insulting women and challenging them to duels. And by this point he wasn't. He was Sieur de Graff, Lieutenant de Roy, Lieutenant of the King. He was in charge of the defense of the coast of Saint-Dominique. He had a position of power, and no small amount of standing in the community. He had troops under his command. He was... In effect, he was the military governor of the city in which Anne lived. And let's not forget that they already knew each other. They'd met at the very least two years ago, before the attack on the Limonade, and more likely it was closer to six or seven years ago. And Anne was a prominent woman in her own right. It's entirely possible that, more than merely acquaintances, they were already friends. Even if it wasn't a close friendship between them, they'd surely share dinner and drinks and pleasant conversation. I think it's a lot more likely that, well, Anne's husband was dead. Lurho's wife was dead. They were already friendly, and... You know how everyone seems to know those two people that are both in their circle of friends that would just be perfect for each other? But it's like whenever one of them is single, the other is always in a relationship. It's never the right time, but the tension between them is palpable. I think it's likely that both of them had been attracted to each other, and in a sense had always been waiting for this, even if the circumstances surrounding it were tragic. Anne, at least, had surely heard of the handsome, charming pirate well before she ever met him. However, we don't know. Whatever the circumstances were, though, they did marry. Anne was now Anne de Graff. And there are some other less romantic reasons they may have married. Beyond the financial and political influence they both had, there's the fact that at the moment, Lorho de Graff had a command on the land. He was in charge of defending Anne's home from the Spanish, and, well, how to put this? Anne had lost her last two husbands to violent deaths at the hands of Spanish soldiers, and Lorho de Graff had an amazing track record of not getting killed by Spanish soldiers, and he'd certainly given them plenty of opportunity. For a time, though, the newlyweds were left in peace. That's not to say there weren't a few scares here and there. The Spanish would occasionally gnash their teeth and threaten attack, but it never materialized. And that's also not to say the Saint-Dominique wasn't involved in the war. But instead of the war being visited upon them, they took it to the English. Governor Ducasse led a mission against Jamaica in January 1693. That was a cold move. It was like kicking a man while he was down. Jamaica, at that moment, was really, really down. Now, we'll go into detail on that at a later date, but... Suffice it to say that they'd had a bit of a shake-up, and Port Royal was, well, underwater. The island was only just beginning to recover when Ducasse attacked, and it was brutal. But it was really, at the time, their only success in the war. Ducasse continued to send out squadrons and allowed his privateers to raid. The English governor in Jamaica would complain of, quote, the daily depredations of French privateers on our coasts, end quote, but... There were really little more than mosquito bites, and he often didn't even send out squadrons to deal with them. More often than not, though, anybody that came to the island in force was chased off by the HMS Falcon, or one of the other warships guarding the Windward Passage. It was a frustrating state of affairs. For both the English and the French, Ducasse knew that if he wanted to 
win a decisive victory, he would have to play the one card he had not yet played. He wrote back to France of Lorho Seur de Graf, quote, He is a man who would fulfill his duty much better in a ship. End quote. He was saying that de Graf's talents were wasted on shore. Everyone knew that he was skilled as they come when it came to being on board a ship, but unfortunately, de Graf's name carried a lot of baggage, and most of it wasn't good. Nevertheless, Ducasse continued, quote, I am obliged to tell you, Monsignor, that he is one of the finest sea officers there is in Europe, and if you should employ him as such, he will give you ample proofs. End quote. See, Governor Jean-Baptiste Ducasse was building an armada. He already had several warships in the fleet of Saint-Dominique. They included the flagship Timoraire of 54 guns and 900 tons. That was under Chevalier du Roland. Then there was the 50-gun, 550-ton Envoux, and finally the 44-gun, 400-ton Royal Warship Hazardou. There were a few slightly smaller warships like the Solide, but most of the fleet that he was building was to be comprised of buccaneers and privateers. Remember, according to Decosse, those pirates had, quote, not been put in the world except to practice brigandage and piracy, end quote. And they were young people that were after libertinage and the ability to gain booty. Those are a hard sort of sailor to command. Unless you had someone like Lorho de Graff. His name carried weight and demanded respect from the privateers, even if, and by this point it was true, most of those rovers that would be sailing for France were not even around when de Graff was in his prime. And it's worth noting, the regular sails on board the privateer vessels during this war, both English and French, and even Spanish and Dutch, well, they would become the next generation of famous pirates. Men like Thomas II, Captain Kidd, and Henry Avery, well, all of them were sailing in this war. Now, none of them were here, fighting for France. They were all English, but you get the idea. So, to wrangle all of these brigands into a fighting force, Ducasse brought de Graff in as a commander. All told, they had a combined fleet that numbered 22 sail, mounting 378 guns, and carrying 3,164 men. And at least one woman. Anne de Graff was on board when her husband set sail from Saint-Dominique in June 1694. Exactly what her position on the ship was isn't clear. It's almost certain she wasn't a crew member. Now, it wasn't unheard of for merchant captains and even naval officers to bring their wives along, but it was unheard of for women to come along in a time of war when the fleet was sailing into enemy waters specifically for the purpose of doing battle. For example, a French officer might be encouraged to invite his wife to sea when his ship was patrolling the Mediterranean coast of France at peacetime. It would be a pleasant voyage, almost a cruise. But when the Spanish Armada was bearing down on your shore, you left your wife at home. And yet, here was Anne. Now, I'm sure Lord Hodegraff was aware of those naval conventions, and while he may not have been a conventional officer himself, he was probably trying to live by them. I can only think that he intended to leave Anne behind when he set sail, but she was here, on board. What I wouldn't give to hear the conversations that took place before they set sail. 
Now, we can't know what circumstances led Anne to sail with her husband, but I imagine something of it involved her being unwilling to stay behind while he went off to fight the Spanish. I mean, Spain had killed her first two husbands while she was apart from them. Maybe, just maybe, she could keep Lorho from getting himself killed and from doing anything foolish if she were by his side. And second, Spain had killed her first two husbands. I imagine she felt she deserved her own chance at revenge. If Lorho, her husband, were going to go kill Spanish, well, she was probably going to jump at the opportunity herself. I also wonder what kind of a relationship she had with the crew here. She was not only the captain's wife, not only their admiral's wife, but she was a well-known figure in local politics herself. She was a known figure in the world of the freebooters. I worked for a woman that owned a little cafe once. She and her husband owned the cafe jointly, but she ran the place. She was the one that made decisions about the menu. It was her you called when you had a problem, and her name graced our checks. She was the boss. But sometimes we would be short-staffed, and her husband would come in to help out for a while. Now, technically, he wasn't an employee. He was just there to help. But when he asks you to do something, I mean, what are you going to do? Tell him no? Now, Anne wasn't a sailor. She'd certainly been aboard many ships in her time, but she'd probably never learned the ins and outs of operating one of them. But if she noticed a problem, or saw men slacking, or just realized something could be done a better way, when she spoke up, well, what are you going to do? Tell her no? Now, she certainly knew a thing or two about giving orders already. She'd been in a position of power for about ten years on her plantation, and she was upper management. When she had something to say, she didn't say it to her slaves, or now she wouldn't have said it to the crew. She delegated that work out. She told the middle managers or under officers, and they told the crew. So I wonder what kind of respect or resentment she earned from the regular crew and from the officers. The fleet arrived off the coast of Jamaica on 27 June 1694. Eight vessels of them lay anchor off Port Morant, while 14 more continued on west and lay anchor in Bull Bay. That was just a few miles from the remains of Port Royal and from Spanish Town. Now the eight ships at Port Morant were left in the command of Lorho and Anne de Graff, while the other fourteen were directly under Ducasse. Now, Ducasse landed his men and went ashore, but they found that nearly all of the locals in the region had been evacuated. This shouldn't have been the case. They'd moved quickly. Nobody should have had time to evacuate. This was highly irregular. However, they scoured a few towns here and there, and finally they did find someone who gave them a bit of information. They learned that the English already had word of their French attack, and they were prepared. And all of that was thanks to a man named Stephen Elliott. Now, Stephen Elliott has a story that would make a decent novel. He was, to quote John Latimer, an intrepid smuggler. In wartime, that meant that he would carry supplies and, perhaps more importantly, news and reports to English, Dutch, and Spanish settlements. All of this he would do while avoiding the French. Now, eventually he would be caught by some French privateers just off the Spanish May, and they took him to Saint-Dominique as a prisoner, and they took his vessel. 
While he was there in Saint-Dominique, though, Stephen Elliott learned of the impending French attack on Jamaica. And after learning of that attack, he actually managed to escape his prison, steal a canoe, and row all the way across the Windward Passage to Jamaica to inform the governor of the French plans. The English were prepared. They'd evacuated miles of countryside all around Port Royal. Every town that wasn't evacuated was fortified as well as it could be. If it had a fort, there were men inside with all of their goods piled behind well-protected doors. The English governor himself had come down personally to Fort Charles. Now, he said it was to oversee the defenses, but remember Port Charles was likely the safest place on the island. Ducasse then had a problem. Exactly where and how to attack, now that the English were so well defended, well, he wasn't sure. Most of the attacks he tried were mild and didn't accomplish much. He would send a few hundred men, and mostly they would just kill some cattle and burn some empty houses. But on the other hand, Lorho de Graff was doing quite well. And it's here we get to see why they were in luck that they had Anne along for the journey. When the buccaneers learned that their original objectives were out of the question, well, Anne was the one that suggested that they seek out new objectives elsewhere. And if you actually look at the history of buccaneering raids on the Spanish main, they tend to stick pretty closely to their objectives, and what Ducasse was doing was attempting to stick to his objective. That might be a sound military strategy, but Anne just decided they go somewhere else. The English weren't expecting them to attack several places on the island. They knew that the planned attack was near Port Morant and near Bull Bay. So they just left. They went far to the northeast in Jamaica, where there were rich, sugar-producing lands. And it turned out to be a really good suggestion. The countryside up there was weak, and they were completely ill-prepared for an attack. Those privateers under the de Graffs stormed any fortifications they found with ease. They took towns, and then they took the surrounding countryside around them with virtually no resistance. They captured treasure and slaves and cargo. More importantly, though, to the success of the mission as a whole, they did a huge amount of damage to the local sugar-producing infrastructure. They destroyed sugar plantations, they broke up processing plants, and then they burned the manor house. To the west, Ducasse was trying to do the same thing, but he wasn't having nearly as much luck. Time and time again he was thwarted, either by well-fortified English forts or by the veto powers of the Chevalier du Roulon the admiral of the fleet. This pattern continued for a month. Ducasse was frustrated in all of his efforts, while de Graff was having success after success. And Anne was there for all of it. She would not be left behind, and with her beside her husband, advising him, helping him to make decisions, they seemed unstoppable. Due to all that success, the men gave her a nickname. They called her Anne Dulevu. In English, God wills it, or by the will of God. They were saying here that she was blessed, and that all her decisions ended in success. And they did. She became, to the French there on Jamaica, something of a good luck charm. When she was there, present, the men had better morale. They fought harder, they marched longer, in part, if for no other reason than to not break the streak of successes that they felt she had brought to them. On the 28th of July, 
Ducas finally had 1,500 men mustered at Bull Bay, and he was prepared to attack Port Royal. The English sent out a sortie to parry his attack and actually did delay the French. Ducas was forced to pull back and remake his plans. Meanwhile, though, Anne and Lord Hodegraaf had left the northeast and sailed out west to Carlisle Bay. There they'd taken the fortress with ease, and they'd captured the slaves there and the cargo and the money, and then they marched east to help and reinforce Ducasse at Port Royal. In this attack, finally, the French took Port Royal and captured everything in the town worth carrying away. Now, they paid a heavy cost, and they didn't really gain that much. The French would later claim to have killed 360 Englishmen in the attack, but the English would only admit to 22, and the French captured virtually nothing in that attack. However, they had their decisive victory, which is what they wanted. Many of them thanked the good luck charm that was Anne du Levoux. However, Governor Ducasse himself was disappointed in their winnings. He claimed everything that they had won for himself, or really for the colony. Now the privateers had probably hidden away some of their shares, but no small amount of what they were going to earn was supposed to come out of the sale of those slaves. They learned, as had the pirates that marched on Panama under Henry Morgan 22 years earlier, that big military operations just didn't pay well. So they left. They decided to go and ravage the main to earn their living. And there was little here that Lord Hodegraaf or even his lucky and lovely wife Anne could do to stop them. This would weaken Saint-Dominique's military position, but it was their right, the buccaneers' right, to leave. Now, the official naval squadron under Ducasse left before the privateers did, so when they left, and then the privateers did as well, Anne and Lord Hodegraaf found their ship all alone. And that was when, crossing the Windward Passage, they were surprised by a contingent of the Armada de Barlavento. The Spanish had come to aid their English allies. Now they'd come too late, but they did finally have the arch-pirate Lorjo de Graaf well and truly caught. The Spanish ships circled the ship of the de Graafs, and they opened fire. The French ship was hit with a terrible barrage. They were caught in the crossfire. Lorho Cornelis Boudouin de Graaf was struck by a Spanish cannonball. And there on the deck of his ship, just off the coast of Jamaica, he died on the 4th of August, 1694. Laura Sook Duncombe writes in her book Pirate Women, the Princesses, Prostitutes, and Privateers Who Ruled the Seven Seas, quote, Anne, horrified at the loss of her husband, nevertheless leaped into the command of his ship, her husband's crew put up a brave fight, giving the Spaniards a long and bloody battle. The Spaniards ultimately prevailed, though, and Anne was captured along with the surviving crew. Her ultimate fate is unknown. End quote. That's a powerful scene right there. The image of Lorho de Graaf, the Lorho de Graaf, struck by a cannonball and breathing his last on the deck. And then his wife, Anne, grabs his sword, raises it above her head, and begins to bark out orders. To your stations, man the guns, repel the borders, fire! The picture of Anne, a young woman, her husband's blood still wet on her hands as she leads the men for hours? Well, well, that crew was fighting hard. They were dying, and Anne was there to lead them through. Now some historians, even relatively modern historians, 
would scoff at the idea of a woman leading a battle so intimately, with the blood and the smoke and screams all around her. But as Queen Boudicca might tell you, or Joan of Arc, or Catherine of Aragon, or Grace O'Malley, or Mary, Queen of Scots, or Queen Elizabeth I of England, or generations of Germanic and Viking warriors, or Anne Bonny, or Mary Reed, as any of them would tell you, women are absolutely capable and often excel at fighting battles and leading armies. That said, though, I do have one major issue with this passage, and that being that none of it ever actually happened. It's not true. I may have lied to you again, so sorry about that. After the raid in Jamaica, Lorho and Anne were both alive and well. And to be clear here, Laura Sook Duncombe is absolutely forthcoming about this fact, more so than I just was. She writes, quote, This legend runs afoul of the historical record of Lorho de Graff's life. Only stories featuring Anne include this detail of his death by canon in the Caribbean. End quote. It's not to say that Anne didn't have a position of power or influence on the ship that she didn't or couldn't lead the men. It's just that her husband wasn't killed at sea and she didn't take up command after him. That's just the legend. And Laura Sook Duncombe isn't trying to mislead the reader by sharing this passage. She states that about the legend before the passage, and she cites her sources too. That story... That whole story about Lorho de Graaf dying and Anne taking up his sword, well, that comes from Ulrich Klausmann, who is a modern historian, and basically it comes from nowhere else. That illustrates the problem here. In her book, Laura Duncombe wrote an entire chapter about women in the Buccaneer era, and during that entire chapter, she really only has a handful of sentences about Anne herself. Most of the chapter is spent describing the buccaneer way of life and giving a brief history of men like Henry Morgan and Alexander Exquimelin. And what is about Anne is largely, well, it's myth. Now, it's not because the author is a poor researcher. She absolutely states that it's part of the myth. But that's all that either she or I or really anybody trying to tell this story have to go on. I mean, she was writing a book specifically about pirate women from... A decidedly feminist perspective, and she still gives over at least half of that chapter to talking about men. And when she does talk about the women, it's legend, because the hard facts, the real records, well, they just don't exist. See, if you're trying to be historically accurate, you have to cross-reference sources and verify claims, and that's basically impossible when you're talking about Anne du Lavoux. Later on, when we're talking about other women in piracy, most notably Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, we have so much more to work with. We have Captain Johnson's book, first of all, but then we have court records and governor's letters and all the kinds of primary sources we could want. But when it comes to Anne, all we actually have so far in her story are birth and marriage records. From that little bit of information and incorporating a bit of the legend, I've tried to piece together her story as best as I can, but in a lot of ways it's been little more than a collage of the life of a 17th century French colonial woman. I committed much the same sin as that author telling you about Back from the Dead Red. The question, though, is why do we have so little reliable information on Anne? I mean, her story has to be fascinating. And there are a number of reasons. 
First of all, I think, and this is a big one, is that the world was busy at the moment fighting one of the largest wars that they'd ever seen. Official documents of the time were too busy with news and reports of troop numbers and naval movements and supply allocation to write much about one woman sailing on a French privateer vessel. Had Anne been present a decade earlier when de Graff took Veracruz or Cartagena, you can be sure the letters of Spanish officers and French governors would have been filled with absolutely scandalized admonitions. You know, what's this? A woman on board a pirate ship? My God, what is the world coming to? And you just know it would have been all the gossip back in France in their salons and boutiques. I like to imagine Parisian women telling their husbands how shocked they were to hear of it, and how could any respectable woman hope to keep herself decent on a ship, much less do her hair, and the sight of blood, oh my, and then getting together with their friends and sharing every gory, bloody detail of every man's throat that she slit. But then second, and perhaps even bigger, there's the implicit sexism of the people writing those official reports and the histories that came after. Once again, I'll lean on Laura Sook Duncombe here. She writes, quote, Male historians often exclude women pirates from their work. Unfortunately for women pirates, the vast majority of history has been recorded by and from the perspective of men. Scholar Dale Spender explains that, and this is Duncombe quoting Spender here, Women have been kept off the record in most, if not all, branches of knowledge by the simple process of men naming the world as it appears to them. They have assumed their experience is universal, that it is representative of humanity. Whenever the experience of women is different from men, it stays off the record. And then Duncombe goes on. Even if male historians today were inclined to write about pirate women, they would have a difficult time doing so because of the dearth of primary sources about them. Since women have been considered unworthy subjects of historical documentation in the past, it is now difficult to study them, a vicious cycle that persists in keeping women off the record. End quote. And then there is a third reason that there might be so little on Anne du Levoux. The publishing industry in the 1690s was still in its infancy. As we just stated, the industry was run almost entirely by men, and the writers that supplied the industry were men. They had a lot of maturing to do, and over the next 30 years or so they would. When Captain Johnson published A General History of the Pirates in 1724, the cover read, quote, A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates, and also their policies and discipline and government from their very first rise and settlement in the island of Providence in 1717 to the present year, 1724. With the remarkable actions and adventures of the two female pirates, Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. And then he goes on to list other things in the book and then names all of the other pirates. The top two pirates named are Mary Reed and Anne Bonny, above Henry Avery, above Black Bart Roberts and Charles Vane and Jack Rackham and Blackbeard. Now, it's not because England in 1724 was a bastion of women's liberation. And it has been argued that actually Captain Johnson was a pen name for a woman, but that's not why publishers would present Mary and Anne so prominently on the cover. They did it because it sold books. There were the women who bought books, much like those hypothetical Parisian women I mentioned earlier, and they would very likely want to buy a general history to read about those two women going to sea and having adventures and kicking ass. 
and women were quickly becoming the driving force when it came to buying books. But then there was the flip side of the coin. The stories of Anne and Mary were scandalous. Not just the women at sea, but women dressed as men, women who lived as men. There was an element in Mark Reed's story of a transgender lifestyle, and then those women were involved in an extramarital, polyamorous love triangle with Calico Jack. Women who accidentally entered into a lesbian relationship. The second edition of the book even updated the woodcuts of Anne and Mary specifically with bared breasts and aimed pistols. It was a magic combination for the publishing industry. They had a book here that had everything. They could sell adventure and rebellion and violence and taboo sex and even a dash of women's empowerment all in one volume. That's a winning combination even today. If the world wasn't so caught up in war in 1695, and if the publishers in Europe had been a little bit more mature, I can only imagine that Anne de Graff's story would have received the same attention as Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. And actually, later storytellers would even try to put many of the elements of Anne and Mary's story into Anne de Graff, erroneously. They would try to put her beside Jacquette de Leahy. They would dress her up like a man and make suggestions of taboo relationships. But those stories were constructed fictions. Without some sort of historical record on Anne de Graff, beyond births and marriages, there's only so much that we can legitimately say about her up to now. Her story isn't over, and she's about to run headfirst into those male historians and become, to her sorrow, very much on the record. So let's rewind a bit. After the raid on Jamaica in the summer of 1694, Anne and Lorho de Graff returned safely to their home in Cap Francais. The following year for them was relatively quiet. The war continued to rage all around, but Cap Francais was left out of it. They managed to have a child as well, a daughter, Marie Catherine de Graff. If Marie Marguerite Lelong had come to the New World, that would now make three children in Anne's household. The English, though, were not going to take this attack against them in Jamaica lying down. A fleet of ships was rushed across the Atlantic as soon as possible when word of the raid against Jamaica reached their shores. England sent two 60-gun, fourth-rate ships of the line. One of them was the flagship Dunkirk under Commodore Robert Wilmot. The other was the Winchester under Captain Thomas Butler. Then there was the 48-gun Ruby, we've seen her before, the Reserve, the Swan, the Terrible, and the Firebrand. And then they had a total of 14 troop transports carrying English regulars, commanded by Luke Lillington. And then there was a hospital ship and a small flotilla of merchantmen carrying supplies. This large and, frankly, intimidating fleet arrived in April 1695. But their forces were almost immediately struck by illness. This was always a serious problem when transporting large numbers of troops to the West Indies. The Europeans didn't have immune systems suitable to handle the New World's illnesses. Several hundred soldiers died on the crossing, and then when they arrived, more than a thousand became ill, and many of them died as well. The fleet arrived at the English colonies in the Windward Islands, and all reconnoitered on St. Kitts, except for the Swan. She was sent ahead to treat with the Spanish in Santo Domingo, 
They proposed a joint Anglo-Spanish raid on the French, and the Spanish agreed. It would have been helpful for the French if they had had an intrepid smuggler of their own to act as a spy, but they didn't. The Armada de Barlavento there in Santo Domingo was commanded by Admiral Francisco Cortez and their general, Gil Corioso. By May, the English ships had all arrived at Santo Domingo, and there they joined their forces. And Jamaica had actually sent some of their own ships and soldiers to join the fight. The Falcon was needed in the Windward Passage, but the 46-gun Hampshire sailed to Santo Domingo along with a number of smaller vessels. The attack on Saint-Dominique began on 24 May 1695. The Allied forces of the English and Spanish descended on Cap Francais. At that time, Lorho de Graaf had only 300 men to defend the town, and over 1,500 English and Spanish soldiers disembarked and marched on his home. They were backed up not only by artillery, but by the big guns in the harbor. Historian James Pritchard writes in his book In Search of Empire, quote, As usual, the buccaneers had fled from any opportunity for serious fighting. Governor Ducas had few resources. The former notorious buccaneer leader Lorho Cornele Baldran Sieur de Graaf, recently appointed king's lieutenant at Le Cap, displayed no military ability at all, and at the end of May the Allies quickly overran the town and burnt it. End quote. I dislike this passage. I think it paints the situation entirely unfairly and from a decidedly pro-colonialist imperial point of view. Exactly what 300 men could have done here, I don't know. But he's not wrong. Lorho de Graaf bungled this invasion horribly. When the Allies invaded, he pulled his forces back ahead of them and let the English and Spanish take Cap Francais. Now, he had no hope of defending it, but he didn't even ensure that the women and children escaped the town. Anne, his wife, and his daughter, and his two stepchildren were all captured, along with many other wives and children. Lorho continued to pull back towards Port de Pie, where the governor could reinforce him, but even that was no use. The Allied fleet, after sacking and burning Cap Francais, fell upon Tortuga, and then Port de Pie, and then every other French city on the coast in quick succession. By July, they were in complete control of the island. Right here, they could have held it, but the war had other ideas. They were forced to fight elsewhere and had to pull back. Now we'll talk a lot more about the ramifications of this attack to the French colony later. But for now, Anne Dulevu and her children would be sent to Havana, and then on to Cartagena, where they would languish in a Spanish cell. When the English and Spanish finally left, everybody on the island began to pick up the pieces, but immediately they began to point fingers and try to attribute blame. That went particularly poorly for Lorho de Graaf, as well as the commander of the Port de Pai garrison. Both of them were arrested, shipped off to France, and made to face a court-martial. There was a sentiment passed around that Lorho de Graaf may have secretly been in league with the English and the Spanish. He was Dutch by birth, and the Netherlands were allied against France. Eventually, though, more than three years later, he would finally be exonerated. But that only finally happened when the war had come to an end. As for Anne... 
She and her children remained in prison for all of those three years. France continually tried to have them released, not just them, but all of the other women and children taken in the raid on Saint-Dominique. But it was to no avail. Even as the war began to end and prisoner transfers began, they held on to the wife of Laurencio. It wasn't until the final prisoner transfer in October 1698 that Anne was released. She and her husband were reunited. They returned to Saint-Dominique, but they didn't live the same life they had before. They were penniless. Lorho, at least, was in disgrace in the French city. He agreed to join up with an expedition under Pierre Lemoyne d'Iberville. It was a better option than staying there. That expedition was going to explore and settle the Mississippi Delta. They traveled from port au pie up through the Bahamas. They made a stop at Nassau, and then they touched down at Pensacola, Florida, in February 1699. Now, the Spanish were alarmed by the appearance of several French vessels, but one of them actually recognized the translator on the voyage. He was a big man. He had more gray in his hair than blonde, and his clothes were rough, but the Spaniard had seen him before in much finer attire. He named him Laurencio. That expedition would eventually go on to found a fort at modern-day Biloxi. De Groff actually knew where to find the best places because of his time spent visiting the pirates at La Salle's colony years earlier, and the local Indians actually offered to help this expedition because they recognized De Groff. They had met him before. In 1701, the expedition would found Fort Louis de la Louisiane. That's in modern-day Mobile, Alabama. That was to be the first official capital of the Louisiana colony. And it was here that Anne and Lorho de Graff relocated. And it's here that their story ends. We know very little about their last years. Some have said that Lorho de Graff used his fort at La Louisiane as a base from which to continue roving. Some have suggested that he had Anne at his side. It's possible, but there's little evidence to support it. Really, no evidence to support it. I think that stems from a feeling that pirates are characters. They're creatures. To be a pirate is what you are. When in fact, it's just a job. And sometimes people settle down. It seems that they established themselves there at La Louisiane, probably as planters, and settled down to raise their family. They would have still been well-known and probably gained some measure of prominence in the community. Maybe not what they had at Cap Francais, but they weren't in disgrace any longer. What we do know for certain comes from church records. Their daughter, Marie Catherine de Graff, was confirmed in the Catholic Church at 12 years old in 1704. And that's the very last record we have of Lorho de Graff. He would have been 51 years old, but still alive and well. We don't know when or how he died. But we do have one further record of Anne, also from the church. She died in 1710, at the age of 48. There is a story that I believe has incorrectly been attributed to Anne du Lavou. The story is that their daughter, Marie Catherine de Graff, would later in life, challenge a man to a duel and kill him. Her parents would have been proud. 
Next time, we're going to rewind the clock to the 1680s. There are other stories from that time period that are less focused on Lorho de Graaf, and Yulavu, Mikhail Andrezun, and all of the rest. And it's time to tell those stories, and then we'll eventually catch up to where we are now. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody for helping to support the show. Many of you have helped support us by giving us a donation on our website or by becoming patrons on Patreon. Many of you have also left us reviews on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, or simply share the show to your friends on social media or in real life. Without all of you, I couldn't do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Facebook, SoundCloud, Twitter, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.